tomorrow uh, will be the 45th anniversary uh, of the uh, ruling Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court that legalized abortion on demand here in the United States. And so as Christians, I think we need to understand this issue and understand where we stand on it, looking at what God's Word says and then to be able to approach it from that standpoint. As I begin to uh, preach this message, just can I just share a little of my heart with you? These are messages that as a pastor you know you really need to inform your congregation because we need to know this. This is more than just a political uh, football that's kicked back and forth between different political parties. Remove all of that. Just look at the issue of, of what we're talking about. Whenever you talk about something like this, naturally, you know there are some folks who uh, are very strong maybe on one hand and very strong on the other hand. I understand that, but I also understand that uh, there are people sitting here in this congregation who have gone through uh, the abortion process. They've had an abortion, or they know a close loved one that has, and um, the last thing they want to do is sit through a, uh, a sermon and have somebody uh, toss hand grenades at them or, or something like that and say, oh, gosh, just keep beating me up. If you've, if you've experienced that, just trust me for, for these moments and listen to the message. And um, because everything that I'm saying to all of our people, I'm especially preaching also to you in, in the midst of this message to provide some comfort uh, and, some, and some hope uh, for you. But this is also a very important message for every young woman uh, that is here that may find themselves in a unplanned pregnancy to say, well, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? I hear what the world is saying. Maybe I hear what some of my so-called friends are saying. Uh, but what does God's word say? And what are some things that I need to do? So that's the way we're going to, to look at this today. And we want to look and see what God's Word has to say and, uh, and, and track that way. So just hold on, hang on there with me uh, as we, uh, as we walk, uh, walk through this. Um, let me give you a little, just a historical background so that we're all on the same page uh, about uh, the Roe v. Wade and Doe versus uh, Bolton uh, rulings. Um, our message is that life is sacred, and that we're going to talk about that and looking at different passages in Scripture and, uh, and, and then begin to build from there. But first of all, let's look at Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is a, court, a case that was brought before the Supreme Court, and the ruling in Roe v. Wade was this. It ruled that states, in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life, may, if it chooses, regulate and even prohibit abortion, except where it is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. So as it's written, it's almost saying that, hey, uh, we want to try to uh, prevent abortion, uh, keep life. But then it comes back, it says, uh, except for where there's the health of the mother. Well, naturally, questions began to come up and say, well, how do you define the health of a mother? And that was the second case, and that was Doe versus Bolton. And in Doe versus Bolton, it says maternal health all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient, all these factors relate to health. In essence, what they said is abortion on demand, because any person that came 
to say that I needed to um, have a per, a, uh, an abortion or terminate this pregnancy could claim any one of these, and it opens up the door for that to take place. And so that's what those that were for abortion would talk about. For those that were uh, against it, uh, what you'd call pro-life, they would come and look at the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution guarantees that no person may be deprived of life or liberty without due process of law. So no person can be deprived of life or liberty without due process of law. So then they look back into the Roe versus Wade, and in Roe versus Wade, this was a description of human life. The court ruled that the unborn child is neither human nor a person, and therefore it's not protected by the Constitution. It is merely a part of the mother's body, not a separate person. And so it says that the fetus in the womb is no different than an appendix or a gallbladder, and it may be removed and disposed of. And so that's what we operated off of. And for the last 45 years, there have been over close to 60 million preborn babies that have died by abortion, and uh, over, about over a million abortions a year. And I had not seen this figure until this past time of research, and that is that 22% of all pregnancies end in abortion. I had no idea. 22% of all pregnancies end in abortion. 8,000 abortions uh, are conducted annually in the state of Alabama. Now, when we think about abortion, one of the first things we think about is unwed teenagers. And we think, well, these are just, these are teenagers. No, actually 60% of abortions were women in their 20s. And, and um, so it's not just a teenage problem. It's, it's a situation that really covers women at a lot of different ages and decisions that they have to make. So I think it all comes down to really three questions. Number one is, is life sacred? Number two, when does life begin? And number three is, what value do you place on human life? Is life sacred? When does life begin? And what value do you place on human life? So if we just just practically take a look at this particular um, issue that's before us, we've got to deal with those questions. Is life sacred? So let's take a first look at the first thing. I would say that life is sacred, and we're sacred because we're created in the image of God. Life is sacred because we are created in the image of God. Now, if you go to the chapter 1 of Genesis, it walks through the creation. And all throughout the creation, God spoke this, God spoke that. But then all of a sudden, when he came to man, look what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, this us is God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says, let's make him after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God made man in his own image image. That word image means something that's a resemblance. It is a representative figure. Man, <clears throat> man is the only creature in that God made in his image. And when he talks about being made in the image of God, it means that we're spiritual, we're moral, we're intellectual, we're immortal being who can communicate and have fellowship with God. 
So let's drive this down a little bit, a little bit further. Life is sacred because we're created in the image of God. Number one, all other creatures were created by divine command, but humans were created by the personal creative work of God. I'll leave that up there for just a moment. When you read through uh, how all the other of uh, creation took place, it was that God spoke it. God said this. God said this. God said this. It was by command. It was by fiat. And he said, let this happen. Let this happen. Let this happen. But then when he got to man, it was God the Father, God the uh, Spirit, uh, God, the Holy, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They all came again. They talked about it. And they said, let's create man in our own image. And, and, and even there's a passage in the next chapter that said that God formed man, even as a potter would form uh, something out of clay. And so we were created differently. We were created by the personal creative work of God. Number two is man was created with a capacity to relate to God. Man was created with a capacity to relate to God. Now, no other part of creation has that capacity to relate to God. Now, I know this is going to crush a lot of you with your special dogs and cats and, and really believe that they have this relationship with God. I got to tell you, they don't. Um, I have been told by my wife that poodles are the smartest dogs known to man. And so we've been, we were poodle people. Uh, we're empty nesters right now. But um, I, I married into being a poodle person and I became a poodle person. And, and it was a small one, little toy poodles on there. And, and with manly names of muffin and sugar and sassy and cuddles. And um, it just felt great. Uh, it was just a testosterone boost when I'd take those dogs out. And so... With those dogs, if you added them all together, we had probably at least 30 years of poodles, not once, even living in a pastor's house, did I come around the corner in cuddles, kneeling in prayer with their Bible open, <laughs> praying to God on that. It never happened. Now, I'm going to save you a lot of time and trouble. Do not go home, take your dog, cross his paws, take a picture, and send it to me. I don't want to see that, okay? Because <laughs> I know you set it up. All right, so... Man was created with a capacity to relate to God. That separates us. That means there's something special about man being created in his image. And then the third is that only humans were in breathed with the breath of God. Only humans were in breathed with the breath of God. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. At the end of verse 7 he says, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He's the only one that received the breath of God. And and God took that and he breathed into man. Man's life force comes from the breath of the creator himself. Breathe. It's a warm, personal word. It's like a face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss. And I love the way he used that word. It's not like, he did that, but it was, just breathed into him. Job chapter 33, verse 4 says this. The spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. This sets us apart. Both animal life and human life, they share in this gift of life, but human life enjoys a unique relationship with God. And this is expressed through the language of image and the metaphor of breath. Listen, life is sacred because we are created in the image of God. So the second question is, is when does life begin? Well, life begins at conception. The Bible teaches it and science affirms it. So what does the Bible say about where life begins? First of all, it says that we are set apart before we are formed in the womb. We are set apart before we are formed in the womb. God in all of his sovereignty has already at times set us apart even 
before we were in the womb. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, the great prophet, it says this, before I formed you in the womb, God speaking, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so even as, as the conception was taking place and he was being placed in his mother's womb, God said, I knew you even before you were formed in there. I knew you, I consecrated you, I set you apart. You don't consecrate tissue, you don't consecrate gallbladders to become a prophet, you consecrate a person. And so he consecrated him. Life begins at conception. Number two, the Bible says that we are sinful from conception. We are sinful from conception. It says in Psalm 51.5, Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, this is David talking. He says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And where he's talking about is when you go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God had Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gave them a choice. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat of that tree right there. And guess what they did? They went over there, and they ate of that tree. And when they ate of that tree, it says sin entered into the world. And when you get to the New Testament, look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans says, just as sin entered the heart of Adam, it entered his seed so that everyone that is born is born with a sin nature. We have the seed of Adam in us. We're all born with the sin nature. And nobody should have to be convinced on this. You know, we do not have to teach our children to sin. We do not have to send them the classes to say, I want you to go to class to learn how to be selfish. I want you to go to class to learn how to be argumentative. And I want you to go to a class to be disrespectful. No. We don't have to send our kids there. Mom and dad didn't have to send me there. I was wired that way. Started out that way. We have a sin nature. And he says, we got this sin nature from Adam. And then you go and look at what David said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So from the moment of conception, the sin nature was there, and so life begins at conception. Number three, our personhood is affirmed while in the mother's womb. Our personhood is affirmed while in the mother's womb. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is such a beautiful psalm. And you get to the middle section of it, and, uh, and it, just, uh, it just blows you away. Because in Psalm 139, if you start in the 13th verse, and from verse 13 through 16, he says this, the psalmist talking to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. While I'm being uh, formed in the mother's womb, it says, you were there knitting me together. David said that he had life and value even in his mother's womb because it was, it was the father, God, that was doing the creating process. And he was knitting him together in the womb, knew his days that were set out before him. And it tells us that God forms the child in the mother's womb and that the child is the subject and object of God's love and concern. 
This is a person that is made in the image of God. And the Bible does not distinguish between prenatal and postnatal life. He puts them together and he says, you are created in the image of God. And that creation takes place at conception. And the last point is this. There's no distinction between humanity and personhood of the preborn and the born. There is no distinction between humanity and personhood of the preborn and the born. There's nothing in Scripture that would lead us to believe that as a baby is in the womb, that it's not a person, but yet once it's born, then it becomes a person. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. In fact, it affirms this statement here, that there is personhood of preborn and the born. Go back to what we would call the Christmas story. And uh, when um, the angel appeared and uh, told uh, Elizabeth that she would have a child, that she would have John the Baptist, okay? Well, all of a sudden, all of a sudden the angel comes and appears to Mary and says that you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And so Mary, in her excitement about that news and trying to figure it all out, she goes to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, who's already many months pregnant, uh, is there when she comes. And when Mary comes and begins to talk to her, Elizabeth makes this statement. It's found in verse 44. In Luke 1, she says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I've never heard an expectant mother say a massive tissue leaped inside of me or a product of conception kicked me. She said a baby leaped in my womb. And you may say, well, that's just our translation on that. The Greek word in the New Testament is a word called brephos, B-R-E-P-H-O-S, brephos, okay? And so with brephos, it is a word that is used in the Greek New Testament for all stages of a pregnancy. That word means a preborn child, an embryo, a fetus, a newborn child, an infant, and a babe. Hear that again. The exact same Greek word means preborn child, embryo, fetus, newborn child, infant, and a babe. This is the exact same word that was used in Luke chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, when the angels told the shepherds, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the exact same word that said there was a child inside the womb of Elizabeth is the exact same word that was used of Jesus when he was born there in Bethlehem. And the Greek language is one that is so particular. You know, there are four words in the Greek language just for love, to, to, to dissect different times when you say, I love this, I love that. And so when it comes to this, though, it just points out that there's no distinction between a preborn baby and a newborn child. A preborn child is not an it, it is a person. There's no distinction between humanity and personhood of the preborn and the born. The Bible teaches that life begins at conception. Well, the Bible teaches it, but let me tell you also, science affirms it. Science affirms it. Science affirms that a baby is genetically complete at conception. All cells containing DNA have 46 chromosomes, okay? A little bit of science lesson for everyone over here. Be, see if you're ready. All cells containing DNA have 46 chromosomes except the sperm and the eggs. Sperm has 23, eggs have 23. 
And in natural conception, the 23 chromosome, chromosomes of the sperm and then the 23 chromosomes of the egg, they come together and they create a single embryo which has 46 chromosomes. And so the uh, genetic makeup of every human being is determined when the sperm and the egg unite. This is commonly called conception. And at conception, all of a sudden, there's an embryo with 46 chromosomes. And then after 21 days, a baby's heart begins to beat. After 30 days, that first month, the baby has its own blood supply, independent of the mother's. By week seven, a baby moves spontaneously. And by week eight, all organ systems are present. And by week 12, a baby can swallow. The vocal cords are complete. And inherited physical features can be discerned. And 92% of all abortions take place in that first trimester. And this is the development of this child. A number of years ago, a group of 60 prominent physicians, which included former presidents of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the American Academy of Neurology, met in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they presented this declaration. And this is what they said. The fetus is not a subhuman species. The embryo is alive, it is human, and it's unique in the special environmental support required for that stage of human development. And a quote that I've used before when I've preached on this, there was a doctor named Dr. Jaime Gordon of the Mayo Clinic. And back in the 1980s, he said, it is an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. The bottom line is the biological facts are absolutely conclusive that the fetus is a living human being. Life begins at conception, and the embryo is a human being. And we are blessed today to have uh, medical technology that we didn't have in the 1970s, and even, even into the 80s to where all of a sudden it wasn't just a sonogram, but now all of a sudden there's a 4D sonogram to where a woman can go in and get a 4D sonogram and uh, a woman who's pregnant, and it can begin to give the clearest, most amazing picture of exactly what's happening there in the womb. And ever since those sonograms have come out, we've seen abortions begin to go down a great deal because a lot of women said, I had absolutely no idea. I've read testimonies of women who said, said when I had the abortion, I thought there was just some eggs in there. I had no idea the development that was taking place. But now we're able to see those things. Uh, you remember in the, um, uh, the Roe versus Wade? In Roe versus Wade, it says the court ruled the unborn child is neither human nor a person and therefore is not protected by the Constitution. It is merely a part of the mother's body, not a separate person. Well, that's just wrong. According to the Bible and science, the baby in the womb has an entirely different set of chromosomes than the mother, a different set of genes than the mother. It has its own bloodstream, and the baby is not an appendage to be discarded, but it is a living human being. And in fact, the understanding of this led both of the, I guess you call them defendants in the, in the case, or the, the principals in the case, to, uh, to change their mind. The uh, Roe, versus, uh, Roe versus Wade the woman who was called Jane Roe, uh, we know her as Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey is the one that the attorneys got to get her to be able to file this case. She became a Christian in 1995. And it was interesting how she became a Christian. She was uh, working uh, at, at an abortion clinic. 
and there was a, uh, a Christian uh, pregnancy resource center that set up shop right next door to him. <laughs> and she got close to a little seven-year-old girl. And as this little seven-year-old girl kept coming by talking to her, she said it put a face on everything. And uh, in the year 2005, she filed suit to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, it failed, but she put her efforts into it. And what she said was that she was misled by her attorneys and that now she understood the injustices of abortion. And in fact, Norma Corvin never had an abortion. At the time that she was working on the, on the lawyers working on her case, she gave birth to her child and then placed him for adoption. But uh, the Jane Doe of Doe versus Bolton, uh, the one that said the maternal health of the mother, her name is Sandra. I don't know if I can pronounce it. It's C-A-N-O. I don't know if it's Cano or Cano. But um, in 2005, she took her case to court. And her statement was, she argued that new laws and scientific evidence provide a justification for overturning the 1973 Doe v. Bolton decision. Life is sacred. Life begins at conception. It's taught in the Bible and affirmed by science and even believed by the two principles that were used in the case for this landmark ruling. So the final question is, if life is, is sacred, and life begins at conception, what value do you put on life? Now, I can give you facts of what I feel that God's Word teaches. I can give you facts from what scientists have said. But like everything else in life, the ball really falls back in your court. And you've got to answer the question is, what value do you place on life? And the value that you place on life will be determined by the choices that you make. Now, as we look at abortion, there are, the question always comes up, what happens about rape or incest or the health of the mother? And what we mean by the health of the mother is there are times when there's such a problem pregnancy that some people have to make a choice. Either we take the baby or, or the mother's life, okay? Rape, incest, and the health of the mother, those are difficult questions, and it makes up about 4% of all abortions. And I'm not going to get into that discussion. And those are times where, where that's where people really have to talk and pray through and determine where they stand on that. And I don't want to deal with that. I just want you to push those aside. And when you listen to everything else that I say, and let's just deal with the 96%. Because what's so scary is that people want to cloud the whole issue with the 4%. Say, hey, well, what about this? I don't think this is fair. So, no, okay, I fine. Let's just put that aside. Discussion later, focus on the 96%. 96% of abortions. And I'm here to tell you that the vast, 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 vast majority of those could all be prevented. Could all be prevented. Because of wise choices that we make. First choice number one, maintain sexual purity. Life is sacred. You make your wise choices, maintain sexual purity. We are created in God's image. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says that we are to be imitators of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 18 through 19, this ties into some of what, um, of what Michael was saying. He says, flee sexual immorality. Do, not, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? What if you just took this verse, took that set of verse, and just placed it in your life and said, flee sexual immorality? And why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. What has happened is that God, when you receive Christ as Savior, His Holy Spirit comes to live in you. 
then if he's going to live in you, your body has been bought with a price. And that is the price of Calvary where Jesus went on the cross and died for your sins. And so how am I to treat my body? I'm to treat my body as to what God's word talks about. It talks about that we're to treat it with righteousness. We're to grow in righteousness and to be like God. And a part of that, he says, is flee sexual immorality. And it's interesting because he knows kind of what a, uh, what, a, uh, what a challenge that is. And over and over in Scripture, it doesn't say just kind of handle it with kid gloves. It says flee, run from it. And if you maintain sexual purity, we could reduce abortions amazingly. 76% of abortions are single women. 76% are single women. 40% of abortions are people who have had two, three, and four abortions. Maintain sexual purity. If we could maintain sexual purity, we could reduce this. And this is not a message just pointing to the women. It takes two guys, okay? This is guys. This is for men to stand up and be a godly man. And it, what it means is saying, I'm not going to pressure someone to have sex. I'm going to be a, a person of righteousness. And, uh, and that's, that's not going to be a part of who I am. I'm not going to do that. And so if men and women, young people, can say, I want to maintain sexual purity. The reason I want to maintain this is because my body has been bought with a price. It's where the Holy Spirit lives and so I want to live this life of righteousness. And you know what? When you do that, you're not going to have to fall into having to make a decision like this. But it's not just this. You can go through almost any area of society to where we have to make some tough decisions. And many times the reason we're having to make these tough decisions is because we violated biblical principles where if we stuck with those principles, we'd have never been in that position in the first place. And this is one of those. Number two, okay? You say, okay, Danny, maintain sexual purity. That'd be great. But hey, I didn't, and I got pregnant. So what happens if you get pregnant outside of marriage? If you get pregnant outside of marriage, let me give you some steps to take. Number one is this. Tell your parents, pastor, or staff member. When this happens and you find out that you're pregnant, if you're a young person, you're living at home, or you're a college student, you're there at home, or you know, still with your parents, you need to tell your parents. Do not go off and make a decision like this on your own or just depend on certain friends or other people. you got to tell your family. For some people, say, I don't know how to tell them. Come talk to me. Come talk to staff members. We've all had somebody come and tell us about a situation they've been in like this. And uh, you just don't need to, to, to go on this alone, okay? You need to go on and talk to someone and say, i got to figure out what I'm going to do. The second thing I would recommend is for you to go and talk to a pregnancy resource center. Save a Life is just down the road. Save a Life is just down the road. Every year, thousands of women go to Save a Life and talk to them about pregnancy. And sit down with someone who can talk to you about this uh, and help you navigate the waters of, of what you need to do. And, um, and that's a good resource to have. And I would encourage that. And sometimes people will go uh, with their parents uh, to, to do that. But you need to do that. And then the third I would recommend is this, is choose life. My recommendation for you is to choose life. That means you either keep the baby or you place the baby for adoption. 
choose life. That is a living human being that is inside of you. And even though the circumstances weren't what you would want them to be, you now have responsibility for this life. I would encourage you to choose that. And two options there is either keep the baby and try to raise, and raise the baby or place that child for adoption. Now let's get to the third one, and that is what happens if you had an abortion? Say, well, I did maintain sexual purity. Something happened. I'm, you know, I got pregnant. And uh, it's just the situation, and I went and had an abortion. Many people would say I had no idea what it was that was being formed inside of me. Others said it was pressure. Some were pressured by parents. Some were pressured by the guy. Some were pressured by friends. Or, or maybe it was just your choice and didn't talk to anybody, anybody else on that. Norma McCorvey from the uh, Roe versus Wade, she said um, that she had over 1,000 women that she had talked to who had an abortion that made this statement. Abortion opens a doorway to pain and suffering for most each passing year. It gets worse. It's a doorway to pain and suffering. And for most, each passing year, it gets worse. I read a, a testimony of, uh, there's a group called like Silent No More, uh, of a woman who had abortion when she was 19 years old. And for 35 years, she dealt with that pain. Until she finally got to the point where she's going to do what I just meant, I'm getting ready to mention to you in just a second. But it's not just women, it's also men. Men who know that they've contributed to the abortion also suffer emotionally and psychologically. And this is painful. And, uh, and it's both the men and the women that walk through this. And so this point is to make wise choices. So to make wise choice. I would say, encourage you to make a wise choice to begin the road toward wholeness and healing. And it starts with number one, and that is to repent and to claim God's forgiveness. Because if, if in your heart you believe having that abortion, that was wrong, you can come and you can repent of that sin to God and you can claim God's forgiveness. In Isaiah 43, 25, I want you to look closely at this word. God speaking, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Remembers your sins no more. As a pastor, I've had people come up to me and they told me at the end of a Lord's Supper that they never have felt like they could take the Lord's Supper because they'd had an abortion years ago. I've had people that have come to me and said that I can't, uh, I, I can't teach Sunday school because I've had an abortion. I can't teach a Bible study because I've had an abortion. And I've had to sit down then and counsel with them and give them this verse and give them 1 John 1, 9, when it says that if we come to God and we ask for his forgiveness, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that that's just a devil's lie, that that's always going to hold you back. No, not at all. Not at all. Yes, you can take the Lord's Supper. Yes, you can lead Bible studies. Yes, you can teach Sunday school. Yes, that is forgiven. That is washed away. And you say, well, I may get right with God, but then there's some things in me that are churning that I've just got to deal with. And that's the second point, and that is to go to post-abortion counseling and or Bible study. There are a number of places for post-abortion counseling. I'm just going to tell you two things. Number one, save a life, again, down the hill. 
And they have got uh, counseling services on that. There's a lady on our staff. Her name is Karen Robbins in our worship arts. And Karen Robbins has taken this on as a ministry of hers. And she has had groups of women that she has walked with this. And she's worked through Save a Life and then on her own of having women come to her and begin to talk and work through this process. And it's been amazing when I would talk to her and she would explain to me like week by week the things that they go through and what as they try to come out the end of this process to give these women this, this new hope and this new, new part of their journey. And it's really amazing. But there is hurt there. It's emotional and psychological. And I encourage you to take advantage and to begin to make those steps towards wholeness. Okay? And know that you're loved here. And you just need to know that you are not going to be under any kind of judgment. You don't have to wear a red A on you. You don't have to feel second-class citizen. That's just the devil's lie. You can be completely renewed in Christ and, uh, and begin that road of wholeness. And all Satan wants to do is to hold you down and keep you from progressing in that spiritual life. And I want to tell you that my hope is today, that today may have been a service that you were dreading, but yet today it was a day that the bondage was released and the shackles were dropped and you said, okay, I can move forward on this. I just hope you, you know our heart on that. And let me give you the final point, and that is this, and that's the church. For the church, we are to commit to help the life of the newborn. We're to commit to help the life of the newborn. You've heard this said many times, and we are guilty of it at times. We're so concerned about the baby in the womb, and all of a sudden when this baby's born, we go, well, you, you know, you're on your own. And uh, we're doing good, but we need to do better. We need to do better in, in, in foster care and adoption services. We need to do better in trying to help these mothers that say, okay, I want to keep my child, so what do I do? Finances are, are difficult. My job situation is difficult. What do I do? We need to embrace and put our arms around them and find ways to help them. Alabama Baptist Children's Home has got great ministries for unwed mothers and to help them and help them to get started with their children. There's a number of ministries out there, but we as a church, we need to even do more for that. And then we as individuals need to be aware of this. And if you're ever counseling someone and you say, I really believe you need to keep the child, I I pray you walk with them through that whole process. And then when that baby's born, if they're deciding for adoption, then help them to find that right adoption service. If they decide they want to keep it, then you need to sit there and say, let's pull some resources together and see what can we do to help them to be able to get the best start possible on there. And I just can't say enough about Save a Life down the hill. You just need to go down there. And, and some of you might just want to go and just go talk to them and learn uh, some things that they can share with us on there. Life is sacred. Life is sacred. And my hope is that we will, all of us, will, uh, will choose life. When I was a, um, in my first pastorate uh, there in Ruston, Louisiana, all of this came to reality for me. We had some, uh, we were located about one mile from Louisiana Tech University, and so there was a lot of college students we had, and we had built up our college ministry. And uh, we had some leaders in our group, some really sharp people. And there was especially uh, one girl that was just cute as a button, uh, one of our leaders, a leader on campus, uh, just great. Her, her face, she just lit up. I mean, you could see the light of Christ all over her, and she was getting close to graduation, and she called me on spring semester, 
called me spring semester. She was one semester away from graduating, and she said, uh, Pastor Danny, can I come by and talk to you? And uh, she says, I'm pregnant. And I said, yeah, come on, come on by. Man, my heart broke as she sat there in my office and began to talk to me. And she says, well, Pastor Danny, my friends are telling me that I should go get an abortion. And they said, uh, it would be easy. We could get it done. I could do it over the summer uh, as we're getting ready to go on break and come back in the fall and graduate. No one would know. And, and, uh, and that's kind of where I'm leaning. I said, well, let's talk through this. And so we walked through, and I talked to her some of the things like I've been talking to you. And I said, well, really, I see you've got four options. Number one is abortion. It may be easy, and your friends would never know. Number two is you could have the child and marry the father. I said, number three, you could have the child, and she was from Texas. You could move back to Texas, and you could raise your child with your parents, or you could have your child and place them for adoption. I said, those are, those are the options that you have. And uh, I said, but before we go, I would encourage you to choose life. That's my encouragement to you. But that's it's your decision. We prayed together, and she left my office. She then uh, called me back. She called me back as she was getting ready to go back uh, to Texas uh, for the summer. And she said, I've uh, decided to choose life. I decided to choose life. And she went back home. She was there at home during the summer. She talked to her family. She came back to the university in the fall. And as she began to show, then she would tell her story. She didn't back away from it. She didn't make it something glorious. She said, I'd made a mistake, and, uh, but I'm not going to make a second mistake. And I'm going to carry this child to term. She graduated, got her degree, and she went home to Texas, and that baby was born. One year after that child was born, she contacted me. And she contacted me just to let her know how she was doing. And, uh, and she said, I'm glad I chose life. A couple years ago, I was back in Ruston to do a funeral of a good friend. And this girl came. And she came to the funeral. And uh, I would not seen her in years, over 20 years. And, uh, and so gave her a hug, talked to her, how was life going and everything. She said, let me show you a picture. Pulls out her phone, puts up on her, shows me a picture. And shows me a picture of a 20-plus-year-old son. And she looked at me and she said, I'm glad I chose life, and I'm happy for her. So I want to tell you, situations happen, and we've got to make decisions. And my hope through all this message is that both men and women will have enough of the facts so that you can have your own mind made up. The hope, you would maintain sexual purity. But I understand at times we're weak, we sin, and then there are consequences. And then you're placed with another decision to be made. May through this, you have a good foundation to figure out what step do I want to take. But also just as important, young people and rest of adults, you would have enough information so that if somebody comes to you who is in this situation, you can give them good godly advice so that they can make their right decisions, okay? So let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you so much that um, when we think about how we were created in your image and a personhood that we had, even as we were being knit together in the womb. And Lord, if one of the values of just going through this is for us to walk out of this place in just a few moments and be so thankful about that we're created in your image and that we have an opportunity to, to have a relationship with you. Wow. Lord, just thank you for that and to know how precious life is. And so, Lord, in the midst of this message, I pray that each of us will be thankful for the life that we have and then knowing that our bodies have been bought with a price. And may we main, maintain our purity, not, not just in this one area that we've talked about, but in all areas of our life. May we strive for righteousness and be able to walk according to your word. And so, Lord, I pray for those in this congregation that, Lord, have been touched by abortion. Whether, uh, whether it's them or whether it's family members or friends they know of, that you can bring a healing balm to them. I pray for them. My heart goes out to them. And then, Lord, I pray for others. There are others that are right here on the precipice that are messing around and doing things that are going to open them up to maybe have an unwanted, unexpected pregnancies and have to make those decisions. And I'm praying, Father, that you would get a hold of their life and let them see that the path of righteousness is so much better. And for all of us, Lord, give us a heart of compassion that when we see people, we see every individual as someone who's been created in the image of God and who has value and who has worth. And may we love them, and may we tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.